Hi everyone and welcome to uh, this lesson today which will look at security in the war on terror. My name is Shireen Fernandez and I'm a lecturer in human geography at Queen Mary University. So my research looks at the geographies of securities with a particular focus on how securitizing measures post 9-11 shapes Muslim identities. So I'm interested in how these measures are embedded in our everyday settings, in particular how they are embedded in schools. So in this lesson today, we will be looking at three key things. Firstly, we will discuss what the war on terror is and why it has been described as exceptional. We will then move on to thinking about how the war on terror has led to an increase in policing and securitization. And finally, how racialized groups, particularly those racialized as Muslim, are viewed as security threats. So let's begin by thinking about what the war on terror is. While the war on terror was a response to the attacks on September 11, 2001, which is often shortened to 9-11, where four commercial airplanes were hijacked and crashed into key landmarks, including the World Trade Center in New York. And the World Trade Center is the building that you can see in the uh, headline uh, in the front page of the Daily Telegraph newspaper on the slides. So the group Al-Qaeda, they took responsibility for the attacks after it was declared by its leader, bin Laden. Now, this was not the first time that a terrorist attack took place in the US, and that's really important to emphasize. So in 1993, a truck bomb detonated in the underground car park of the World Trade Center, uh, which killed six people. And in 1995, a government building in Oklahoma City was also bombed by uh, somebody called Timothy McVeigh, um, who allegedly expressed anti-government sentiments. And it was in that attack that over 150 people were killed that day. Now, the key difference, however, with 9-11 and these other terrorist attacks uh, was the scale of the destruction that took place, with over 2,000 people dying that day and the symbolism um, that it represented. So the attacks on 9-11 came to be known as a destruction of freedom, uh, of liberal values, of democracy, and so forth. And the narrative around the war on terror was framed in that way. Now, the president at the time of the attacks was George W. Bush. Um, and at the time, he labeled these attacks as a form of terrorism. Now, in the days after the attacks, uh, the Bush administration, which is the term given to describe the government uh, at the time, declared a state of emergency to reflect the seriousness um, of the situation. Now, state of emergency is declared um, to uh, reflect you know, the seriousness of a situation, that there is a crisis going on, but also in effect suspends normative laws um, and grants permissions for governments to use extraordinary measures to manage situations. So if we think about, for example, the COVID situation in the UK and across the world, um, the UK government declared lockdowns, they declared um, you know, various forms of um, restrictions, all because of a, a state of emergency, which was the uh, COVID pandemic. So emergency measures are used to deal with an ongoing crisis. And that, is, in essence, is what happened with the war on terror. On terror, these exceptional measures um, and responses spiraled globally. Now, even though the attacks on 9-11 only were confined to um, you know, the United States, 
Um, the war on terror was felt globally. It was experienced globally. And what we mean by this is that the US, for example, they invaded and attacked Afghanistan and Iraq on the grounds of fighting terrorism. Now, many other countries across the world, particularly the UK, showed allegiance to the US and showed their support that they would also um, join the US in this fight against terrorism. And so we can see how this idea of countering terrorism um, became a global ambition. Now, the Bush administration, when they invaded Iraq, they claimed that they were doing so on the grounds of uh, finding weapons of mass destruction. And this was later disproven. Now, some of the other exceptional measures to exist um, within the war on terror was this idea of indefinite detention of those suspected of terrorism in prison sites, so uh, such as Guantanamo Bay. So, for example, if you were accused um, of being a terrorist or had, for example, links to a terrorist organization, you would have been imprisoned um, in um, a site or a black site uh, or a detention facility such as Guantanamo Bay in which your civil liberties, so your rights, uh, your legal protections and so forth are suspended. Now, when the U.S. launched its offensive in Afghanistan, several Muslim men were captured in and around the country and they were sent to various prisons. So this includes Guantanamo, this includes Bagram. Um, and in particular in Iraq, it was exposed that prisoners were subjected to torture by U.S. soldiers in a prison facility known as Abu Ghraib. Although the U.S., um, the Bush administration, they uh, condemned these forms of torture and abuse and they said that it was not befitting of the U.S. Army or the U.S. in general, it was difficult to, to distance themselves from the practices of torture, especially when the government at the time legislated for such extreme measures to be used. Um, so, for example, in one case, uh, it was permitted to waterboard um, detainees and individuals who were held in these sites, which is a form of drowning, uh, is a form of uh, torture because it stimulates this idea that a person is drowning in effect to get them to confess to certain allegations and so forth. Uh, now, it's also really important to emphasize that any sort of admission made under forms of torture or abuse can never be used in a court of law because of the circumstances in which these allegations um, were made. Um, and another really, really important point to remember is that detainees who are imprisoned in sites such as Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib and so forth, um, they are stripped of their legal rights and entitlements because they are not considered as prisoners of war. They are not considered as prisoners, but rather they are considered as enemy combatants. Now, this allowed for them to be treated inhumanely and restricted their access to the courts of law. So as the war on terror expanded, so too did the methods of torture, um, the methods of abuse and the methods of securitization um, change and expand by the US. So when Barack Obama came into power in 2008, he made many commitments, including the closure of Guantanamo Bay. So at its peak, there are around 900 or so detainees who um, were captured by the US. Um, and currently, there is only a handful or so uh, of men who are still detained uh, and getting them released is actually quite logistically difficult. And the reason why they have remained in prison facilities such 
as um, uh, Guantanamo Bay is because uh, the U.S. does not want them on their soil, on their in their country, because then they would have to be tried in their courts. Uh, and so there's very difficult bureaucratic procedures associated with releasing prisoners. So during the war on terror, the use of drones became widespread in countries such as Yemen and Somalia, which were drafted and included in this war on terror. Now, because terrorism is such a wide-ranged concept, it is constantly changing the definitions of what is a terrorist, what is terrorism. Um, it's a political tool. Uh, it changes depending on who is uh, declaring what it is, uh, what country, and so forth. Um, there really is no official end to this idea of the war on terror. Um, and we've seen this with the way in which drones have been used. Now, drones are novel to the war on terror because they do not require soldiers to be present physically in the battlefield. Rather, they work more like video games or a controller is based in the US uh, and can basically operate from the US to shoot uh, and kill targets as far as places such as Afghanistan and so forth. They are considered to be deadly machines and essentially they are you know, described as killing machines as well. Now, drone warfare contravenes the rule of law in many ways, but one of the main ways it does so is that it does not allow an individual to be tried for their alleged crimes. It does not give them access to courts, legal procedures and, and whatever. Um, rather, it just kills them um, uh, on the spot. And in Yemen, these drone strikes in particular have indiscriminately targeted children um, and civilians. And there have been a large number of children who have also uh, been caught up in this expanding war of, on terror. Now, one of the ways uh, in which the war on terror morphed is that it also came home. And what we mean by this is that the war on terror was not just confined to faraway lands, but it was also experienced acutely in the UK and the US and so forth. So it came back to the West. It came back to Western countries. It was not just fought in the global South. Now, in the UK, the 7th of July bombings in 2005 prompted the UK government to take seriously the threat that terrorism could be brought back home. Now, this process is often referred to as blowback and describes a situation where the violence experienced elsewhere comes back to the domestic sphere. The government argued that individuals were becoming radicalised and were being encouraged to join terrorist organisations and groups. And over the years, the terrorist threat has transformed and attention shifted from groups such as Al-Qaeda to ISIS, who carried out a string of attacks in the UK. Now, as a way to manage this threat of terrorism in the domestic sphere, the UK government launched what is known as the Prevent Strategy, but, you know, it became later known as the Prevent Duty. Now, Prevent was launched in 2003 under the leadership of Tony Blair, but since then has changed in its nature and scope. So initially in 2003, when it was launched, the government was really interested um, with this idea about community cohesion. So working with communities to alleviate uh, this idea of terrorism. Uh, the logic was that if we work with Muslim communities in particular, um, we will be able to um, we will be able to prevent further attacks from happening and so on. Um, now, this led to a number of organisations and charities being funded by uh, the UK government under this remit of counterterrorism. Uh, and bearing in mind that, especially in two thousand eight, 
when the recession occurred. A lot of these organizations were cash strapped, they had no money, and often had to turn to these alternative forms of um, finance. Um, but what what happened is that Muslim communities, Muslim groups, um, you know, young uh, young Muslims became very suspicious of these organisations because of their associations um, with government counterterrorism industries. Now, in 2015, the Prevent strategy became known as the Prevent Duty, and there was a radical shakeup to this counter extremism program. So in 2015, the prevent duty became a statutory duty in um, schools, in public institutions, such as schools, um, healthcare settings, universities, and so on. And what this means is that those people who are working within these settings must now abide by this policy. Now, it's really, really important as well to keep in mind that although prevent requires individuals um, to refer people on to uh, this program for alleged extremism or radicalization, the definition of extremism is actually quite vague and it's not very easily identifiable what it is. So the UK government defined extremism as active or vocal opposition to British values um, and you can see what these values are in the current slide. And you may be aware of British values as these are now also required to be promoted in schools and colleges and there seems to be a suggestion through both policies, that if you promote British values, you are less likely to become an extremist or terrorist. So we're starting to see now the way in which extremism, terrorism, and so on is becoming closely associated with this idea of nationalism um, and this idea of that particular uh, groups and communities are more susceptible to this idea of extremism. So we've spoken a little bit about how Prevent came about, but now I really want to think a little bit further about how PREVENT works. So PREVENT, as I've said, is the counter-extremism measure used by the UK government to refer those they believe who are susceptible to this idea of extremism and radicalisation um, onto their programme to de-radicalise them so that they do not commit acts of terrorism. Now, it's really important to note that the UK is, um, this is the flagship programme of the UK and globally, now many different countries are trying to adopt a programme similar to prevent. So France, for example, the US and so forth. So how does it work? So prevent relies on those working in the public sector to refer individuals. So, for example, a teacher may refer a student that they are teaching because they have said something to suggest that they may be at risk to extremism. So we're going to unpack this further in the next few slides. Uh, but for example, this can constitute a child um, declaring or saying something that has happened at home. Uh, it could be a passing conversation with their friend or so forth that has been picked up and overheard by a teacher and is referred to prevent. Now, the referral is assessed by the police and the local authority who decide if the case needs to be escalated. So if an individual is believed to need further support, they will be referred onto the de-radicalisation programme known as Channel. Now, a large percentage of those who get referred do not end up in Channel, but that does not mean that the consequences of a referral is no longer felt. Now, when thinking about what PREVENT is, these three words are often used to describe it. So prevent is described as operating in the pre-criminal space and is a preemptive measure, which means that it is viewed as being separate to any measure in the criminal justice system. So in effect, um, 
In effect, this means that criticisms of prevent as a form of policing are stifled because it is said that prevent exists outside of this realm of policing, of criminal justice and uh, the criminal justice um, industry and so forth. Now, this is further bolstered by claims that prevent is a form of safeguarding designed to protect individuals rather than stigmatize. So, for example, um, if you see that, um, you know, a lot, as we're going to see in the next few slides, a large number of Muslim children um, have been referred on to prevent, and it will often be said that they have been safeguarded from harms and abuse uh, and, and so on of ex related to extremism and radicalization. Now, a really important point to keep in mind is that PREVENT is about ideologically challenging individuals, which means that certain beliefs and practices will be considered as forms of extremism. Some have been flagged for talking about um, religious practices, whereas others have been uh, referred for wearing items of clothing, which have uh, raised concerns that they could be at risk to extremism and so on. Now, PREVENT describes itself as tackling all forms of extremism and terrorism, primarily Islamist and far-right terrorism. But since its inception, so since it began, the focus has been on those racialized as Muslim. Now, it's difficult to untangle the association between extremism, terrorism and Islam because how ingrained it has become in policy and public discourse. So as we saw in the earlier slides where we spoke about the war on terror and how it led to invasions and occupations in Iraq, in Afghanistan, drone strikes in Yemen, these are predominantly um, you know, Muslim countries, these are predominantly um, Muslim spaces and the, det the, t the detention of um, you know, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and so forth, these were Muslim men who were being round up. And so we can see the way in which the war on terror, in the, especially in the earliest of times, was being associated with this uh, idea that Muslims in particular were committing acts of terror. And this has still permeated the discourse around counter-extremism and counter-terrorism. So I now want to focus on this idea of what preemptive security is and what it means. And this is really important as we're unpacking um, today this idea of how securitization has led to an increase of insecurity by those who are racialized as Muslim. Now, preemptive policing uh, and preemptive security measures is based on two ideas. Firstly, that crimes can be intercepted before they happen. Um, and secondly, it is that um, it relies on this idea that we need to rely on our gut instincts, uh, on suspicion and so forth to dictate who may be a criminal. Now, this suspicion is intimately connected to race and class and projections of crime. So, for example, that certain crimes are likely to be committed by certain groups. So in, um, in Adam's previous video, for example, he spoke about sus laws which derives from this idea of suspicion and preemptive policing that allowed the police to stop and search those that they believed were going to commit a crime. And this led to an increase in suspicion and the targeting of young black men in Britain by police, some of which we still see today, despite the sus laws being revoked. Now, PREVENT operates on similar logics, that people can use their gut instincts to identify those that they believe are susceptible to extremism and radicalization, um, before they commit an act of terror. Now, because of the way that extremism, terrorism and radicalization have been described in the media and the policy um, as largely a Muslim problem, as we've outlined in the previous slides, um, 
Teachers, doctors, and so forth uh, who are required to implement Prevent are more likely to refer those who are Muslim onto its program. Now, again, I just want to emphasize that Prevent will claim that it is about all forms of terrorism and extremism, primarily focusing on Islamist and far-right ideologies. However, not only are the referral experiences not the same, uh, but the signs of extremism related to both forms of terrorism and extremism, are uh, they vary greatly. So research that I've conducted, as well as an academic colleagues, um, such as you know, Tarek Yunus, um, who has worked on Prevent in the NHS, indicates that normative beliefs and practices associated with Islam uh, will tend to be referred on to um, prevent because they are misconstrued as signs of extremism. So, for example, we've had uh, interviews where participants have spoken about how um, the fact that they were praying or asking to pray in certain spaces or fasting or questioning prevent has led to them being referred onto its program or being referred to a manager and so on. So here are some examples of how Prevent has targeted um, individuals. Now, these are some of the effects of what it feels like to be um, referred. So in one of the uh, newspaper articles, it says that my son was terrified um, and how Prevent alienates UK Muslims. So it really uh, excludes them from uh, public life. And there's been a number of reports, uh, a number of papers uh, and research which has been done looking at the impact of this measure on uh, Muslims in spaces such as the NHS, schools, universities, and so forth, where a large number of Muslim groups um, and students have come out to say that they feel like their expressions, what they can say, is being limited because of this, uh, because of the way in which Prevent operates. So here are some of examples of how Prevent. Oh no, that's the wrong one. Sorry. So one of the most prominent effects of counter-extremism measures is the rise in Islamophobia in society. So here is an example of how mainstream media exacerbates Islamophobia, and these are all intimately connected to how Muslims have been constructed as security threats. So we can see here we have three examples um, from three different newspapers, uh, one claiming that you know one in five British Muslims have sympathy for jihadis, uh, others saying that Muslims tell British to go to hell, um, and the third, that millions are eating halal food without knowing it. Now, all of these headlines, um, they play into a narrative um, that Muslims are, cannot be included into the British state, for example, that they exist outside of the nation state, that they are security threats, uh, that they cannot integrate and so forth. Um, and it problematizes Muslim communities, not just as extremists and terrorists, um, but says that they cannot really live side by side um, with with others in a uh, in our society. Um, now, especially after Brexit in particular, we've seen the rise in Islamophobia, this idea that those who visibly look Muslim are being attacked, uh, even if you are not Muslim, if you are just brown, for example, if you're black or whatever, if you look like you are Muslim, you could be attacked uh, in our everyday spaces. So we are seeing the way in which our spaces are being constructed as sites um, of insecurity because of um, you know policy discourse because of these measures such as prevent uh, which are playing on this narrative that Muslims um, you know are, are susceptible to, to, to certain forms of violence. So thinking about this a bit further now, I want to just um, spend the next two slides thinking about how counter extremism and security have become an everyday feature. Now, as I said in the previous slide, so those racialized as Muslims, those who look 
Muslim um, may experience public life in a very different way because of uh, counter-extremism measures, because of counter-terrorism measures. Um, and we can see, that especially in the UK, especially in London in particular, where my research has been conducted, we can see that spaces, public spaces, such as, um, you know, transport, uh, tube stations, uh, airports, shops, and so forth, um, are encouraging Londoners to uh, become the eyes and ears of counter-extremism and counter-terrorism. So if many of you have uh, taken a train, for example, uh, you may be aware of the um, uh, See It, Say It Assaulted campaign, which encourages those um, travellers and commuters to report for signs against, uh, to report an individual if they believe they are looking, if they look suspicious, if they look risky. So it could be that they are wearing a bag or they have are looking um, quite uh, shiftily around the place. Uh, for example, so Londoners are being encouraged to report uh, these individuals onto police um, and so on. Now, again, it's really important to remember that these um, ideas, these, these, the suspicion is rooted in this understanding that crime, uh, that terrorism, that extremism is intimately connected to forms, uh, to, uh, to particular racial groups um, and so on. So we cannot separate then this idea of securitization, counter extremism, counter terrorism. Uh, from the way in which crime has been um, crime has been racialized. Now, one of the key examples that many Muslims um, uh, and those racialized those racialized Muslims uh, will speak about is their experiences in the airport. So, uh, the way they are treated differently, for example, they are taken away for extra security, they are scrutinized further, um, and so on, shows how um, you know simple activities such as traveling uh, um, are you know, made to feel much much harder um, for Muslims because of these uh, counter-extremism and counter-terrorism measures. Um, and to wrap this uh, all up and to just, uh, you know, come back to this idea of how our, uh, how counter-extremism, how security has become an everyday feature, um, I really want to emphasize this idea that counter-extremism really does rely on um, visualizing security threats. So this idea that you can see the threat, you can see, um, you know, potential uh, signs of extremism and risks and so forth. And so we really are, um, you know, as everyday citizens, as as individuals and so on, we are really are dra being drafted into the front lines of the so-called war on terror that we are now expected to, um, you know, uh, report uh, individuals that we believe are going to be uh, susceptible to extremism, that we believe could commit acts of terror and so forth, um, which shows the way in which the war on terror um, is coming home. So again, um, as you go into different shops, if as you travel uh, by train, by bus, uh, by plane and so forth, you're going to now become more attuned to the way in which you are being asked to um, be part of the war on terror, so, uh, so to speak, or be part of counterterrorism uh, efforts, this idea that it is not just the state's responsibility, but it is an everyday responsibility um, uh, for everyone.